If you've been a Christian for many years, you will probably, depending on what kind of church you grew up in, you will probably remember the song to a children's song that I sang as a kid called Jacob's Ladder. Does anybody remember that song? Anybody want to sing it? Now, I said that in Bob Carver's class, and they began singing, We are climbing Jacob's Ladder. I promised my wife I wouldn't sing it. But some of you know that song, We are climbing Jacob's Ladder, We are climbing Jacob's Ladders. And the second verse says, Every round goes higher, higher, and we would make the motions of climbing a ladder. You probably didn't think much about theology when you sang that song. But as we're going to see today in our study, the theology of that song is not very good. I don't know the intent or the thoughts of the writer's mind when he, when he posed the lyrics, but it implies that we're climbing, we're striving our way to heaven. And today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that inspired the words of that children's song, and while doing so, we'll see why the implication of those lyrics are so wrong. And I know that Christmas has already come and gone, but this morning, this is my Christmas message. We're going to see the story of Christmas in this passage that has come to be known as Jacob's Ladder. It's found in Genesis chapter 28, if you want to be turning there. Genesis chapter 28, we're going to look at verses 10 through 22. I had a difficult time breaking this text down as I began studying for it. There's so many different directions I felt like I could go, so many important truths and applications. But the way I chose for us to look at it this morning is that we will examine the context of the passage, and then while doing that, we're going to see an overarching theme of God's sovereign grace, and then we're going to see three attributes of this grace, three attributes of God's sovereign grace. We're going to see the providence of God, the promises of God, and the presence of God, specifically as they relate to the sovereign grace of God. So I want to begin by reading verses 10 through 17 of chapter 28. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, and he lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, I told you there was an overwhelming theme that runs throughout this story, and that's the sovereign grace of God. So quickly, I want to define that term. What's the word sovereign mean? In control? Powerful? You know, totally in control? What's the word grace mean? Unmerited favor. I always learned the little acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Sovereign grace then would be the unmerited favor shown by the all-powerful God and Creator and the way that He alone chooses to do so. In some ways, everyone is a participator in the sovereign grace of God. If you think about it, even unbelievers 
have clothes to wear, food, shelter. They have friendship. There's many ways in which all everyone is a participator in the sovereign grace of God. But specifically, it really comes to life in election. When you think about election, you think about the sovereign grace of God, that God chose some unworthy people, wicked people, to shower them with his grace through salvation. I love Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, which says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us. Here in the same sentence, we have a reference to God's sovereignty and his grace and salvation. And we're going to see in our passage today that God's sovereign grace is a theme that runs throughout the story. It, began, it begins as we look back on the context of the passage as we go back to set the stage of this event in Jacob's life because look at verse 10 of our text it tells us in verse 10 of our text it says Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran to understand properly what's going on here we have to know why he left Beersheba and why he's going to Haran and as we do this we will witness the first aspect in Jacob's life of God's sovereign grace and that is the providence of God So as we examine the life of Jacob, we're going to see that God was working all along. Even when Jacob didn't know it, even when things weren't going well, God was at work in his life. And he has been throughout all of history. I thought about just, you know, how God orchestrates all events of all history. Everything that goes on, he orchestrates it in such a way that brings about his will. That's what providence is. And we're going to see it here in the life of Jacob. Most of us probably know a lot about Jacob, but I don't want to assume anything. Who is Jacob's father? Isaac. Now, I know we don't talk a lot in here, but sometimes when I ask you a question, you are allowed to answer. (laughs) Who is Isaac's father? Abraham. So Jacob is in the line of Abraham. It's his grandfather. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, of course, we know that Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, the one in which God made a covenant with. The Abrahamic covenant, we call it, which said that through his wife, Sarah, he was promised a great nation, a covenant people to walk with God, that the whole world would be blessed through them. And in verse 14 and 15 that we just read, that's reiterated. That promise is reiterated to Jacob. So right here, immediately, you see the sovereign grace of God in Jacob's life. Why were they chosen to be the family that would, that would father the chosen people? Why were the Jews chosen to bless the world? Anybody know have the answer to that? God loved them. There's no answer to why they were chosen. It was just God's choice to do that. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through first part of 8 explains it. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. There was no other reason than that God chose. So right here, as we review who Jacob was, we immediately see the sovereign grace of God. But we need more context. Jacob, you remember, had an older brother. What was his name? Esau. And they were twins. Esau was actually born first. We don't know whether it was a few minutes or a few hours, but he was the elder son. And, of course, being the elder son in those days meant that they were the ones to receive the bulk of the inheritance and the blessing of the father. But God had promised to Rebekah, Isaac's wife, that the older son would serve the younger. 
And you recall how Jacob manipulated his hungry brother into selling him his birthright for a bowl of soup. That was probably some good soup. Then with the encouragement of his mother, Rebekah had deceived his father Isaac by covering his hands with goat's hairs and skins and putting on some of Esau's clothes. And he stole the blessing that was to be Esau's. All of this is recorded in the chapter leading up to this in Genesis chapter 27. But you've heard the old saying, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but not all the people all the time. Esau was fooled for a moment, but he, he wasn't completely fooled. He, and he got angry. Look at verse 41 of chapter 27. 41 of chapter 27 says, So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Verse 42 through 44 of that chapter tells that his mother Rebekah got wind of Esau's plans. So she calls for Jacob and in order to save his life, she tells him, get out of here. You need to run to your, your uncle Laban's house and take refuge there until Esau calms down. Now evidently Jacob didn't just listen to his mother and do it. He must have said something like, what does dad think? Because then it tells us in the next few verses that Rebekah had to go to Isaac and persuade Isaac that this was what needed to happen. And he didn't, she didn't go to him and say the same thing. She actually goes to him and says, she takes a different approach. Verse 46 says, Rebekah says to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? What she's saying in essence is that he shouldn't marry a Canaanite. But it's time he should marry and it should be in the lineage of our forefathers. And what better place to find a wife than to go to his uncle Laban's house. Now I could go off on a tangent here and talk about wives and how they manipulate their husbands. But that's not the point here. Get in trouble for, I'll get in trouble for saying that. But Isaac listened to her. Isaac did listen to her. In the first few verses of chapter 28 tell about Isaac giving instructions to Jacob how he was not to take a wife from the daughters of Canaan but go to Laban's house and take a wife from, the, from his daughters. So now we pick up our story in verse 10 of chapter 28 and we see in verse 10 why Jacob departed from Beersheba and was headed towards Haran. That was where Uncle Laban and his family lived. So as we began discussing this story, it's important to note again that there's no mention of Jacob being a righteous, God-fearing man at this point in his life. There's no mention of God ever having spoken to him. He's spoken to his father Isaac. He's spoken to his grandfather Abraham. But he's not spoken to Jacob. He's heard of their faith all of his life. He has witnessed their faith. But he has not really had a personal experience with the Lord himself that we're aware of. I think it's appropriate to note that this is a common experience in many Christian families, isn't it? There are many Christian families who have children living in their home who are going to church, they may be going to youth group and going through all the motions that the family does, but they really haven't had a personal saving faith experience with Jesus Christ. They are living on the faith of their parents. And I think that's where Jacob is right now. I think the actions of his life up until this point bear that out. What has he been? He's been a manipulator. He's been a liar. He's been a deceiver, even to members of his own family. And because of this, he's now running for fear of his life. I think it's safe to say that this is a low point in his life. He's desperate. He probably has very little with him in the way of possessions or money. He's alone. He has been traveling for two or three days. Based on where he is, he has many more days to travel. 
to get to Laban's house. And verse 11 tells us that as the sun went down, he took a stone, he placed it under his head for a pillow, and he laid down. So can you get a picture of this? If you've been to Israel, you know there's rocks everywhere. He's out in the desert, and he just uh, lays down, grabs a rock, pulls it up by his head, slides it under his head, and he lays down and goes to sleep. It's at this point that he is going to personally encounter God by way of a dream. I don't think all of the, the things that have happened to him up to this point are a coincidence. In fact, I know they're not. It's not a coincidence that he's alone, he's afraid, he's running for his life. He's probably tired, missing his parents. He doesn't know what the future holds. He's in a desperate situation. It's at this point that God is going to reveal himself to Jacob. God has been preparing him for this moment. God has been working everything in his life, all of what's gone on in his life. He's, he's led him to this point. That's what the providence of God is. As I thought about this, I thought about how God orchestrates all events of history to work his will and how his timing is perfect. Even in the, the sending of his son, it said in the fullness of time he sent forth his son. He had sent John the Baptist before him to prepare the way. You think about how, you know, the disciples that he was going to call. They were all in a spot that God had brought them to to hear the message and, and to be believed and to be his followers. And I thought about my own life, and I thought about the providence of God's work in my own life, how everything that's happened in my own life has brought me to the point where I came to know the Lord and even to the point where I am today. And all of you probably have experiences you could share about the providence of God in your walk and how he brought you to where you are today. And he does that with Jacob. Verse 12, we find Jacob being tired, exhausted, he has a rock for a pillow. He falls into sleep. And this is where he encounters the dream. And it's not an ordinary dream. He sees in the dream a ladder. And I looked up all the words for ladder that they were using back then. And the scholars disagree on the interpretation here. A lot of them say that the word salam meant ladder. Some thought it meant staircase. Some even thought it meant pathway, like going up a, a mountainside. They all had the same context, something you climb to get up higher. But I think that the word there is not that important, but what it's talking about, the fact that it was something you climbed up to get, it was, a, it was a something that you traveled, a way of traveling back and forth. It's similar, it brought up the story of Genesis, in Genesis 11 about the Tower of Babel and how they, the people were trying to build a tower to heaven. In the picture of that, you would have had a picture, they wouldn't have had elevators, you would have had a picture of a, some type of wide, large staircase leading up and the people would travel up that to heaven. But in contrast to the Tower of Babel where man tried to build something to reach heaven, that's not the case here. The ladder is initiated by God here. In verse 13 it says, Behold, the Lord stood above it. Some versions say beside it. It gives the picture of God standing in heaven above the ladder, Jacob on the earth at the bottom of the ladder, with the messengers of God, the angels traveling back and forth. This was the open doorway to heaven, to God, a bridge from earth to heaven. Now, it doesn't tell us here specifically in this passage about the latter being a messianic picture of Jesus Christ, but that's what it is. It's a messianic picture of Jesus Christ, and we know that for sure because of some verses in John chapter 1. If you would, turn over to John chapter 1. It makes it abundantly clear here. In John chapter 1, in verse 35, we are told of some of the first converts coming to Christ. And then in verse 43, it records 
Jesus meeting Philip. It says the next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. So Philip follows him. And then in verse 45, Philip goes to his friend Nathanael. And in verse 45, Philip calls him Jesus of Nazareth. He says he's telling him about who, who this man is that he wants him to meet. And that didn't impress Nathanael because Nazareth was just that little tiny village in Galilee. And Nathanael asked that famous question in verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip's response is simply, Come and see. No pressure. Make up your mind for yourself. Now, in verse 47, something happens. Jesus sees Nathanael coming to him, and he says, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Now, we might pass over that statement rather quickly, but it ties directly back to our story. What was Jacob's name soon to be changed to? Israel. Jacob's name, not long after our story in Genesis 28, he's going to have an encounter and wrestle with God, and his name is going to be changed from Jacob to Israel. Jacob, the word means supplanter. The name means supplanter, one who takes another's place. Israel means a noble person who prevails with God. In essence, Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, you are a true son of the man called Israel. There's nothing false in you. To say it that way would remind Nathaniel of the story of Jacob. Later on, Nathaniel in verse 49 says, you are the son of the God. You are the king of Israel. And look at what Jesus responds in verse 51. In verse 51, Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. And here it is, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Where did Jesus get a picture like that? He gets that, he's referring to our story in Genesis 28, the story of Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder is not a what. It's not a, a debate over whether it's a stairs or a ladder or a path. It's a who. The ladder is a who. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ladder to heaven. It's a, that's what the, it's a, Genesis 28 is a messianic picture of Christ. What does it mean? It means that the person of Jesus Christ, God, has come down to the ladder to join us on earth. Jesus Christ himself is the stairway that leads back to heaven. If you want to go to heaven, Jesus is the stairway. He's the ladder. That will take you from here to there. That's why later in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one enters to God without me. Jacob's ladder is Jesus Christ. He came down from heaven to earth so that we might have a way from earth to heaven. Perhaps you've heard it said this way, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Isn't that the story of Christmas? Man cannot find a way to God. In fact, the truth is, without God's intervention, no one is seeking God. Romans 3.11 says it straight up. No one seeks God. The story of Christmas is all about Jesus coming to redeem his chosen family. It's not about a man climbing up to God, but God coming to earth to provide a way to heaven through his Son. And that's what's happening here in our story in Genesis 28. It's a shadow of what is to come. And all of this is a part of the providence of God. Who Jacob is, who his family is, the events that have transpired with his brother Esau, even this dream and the encounter are all workings of God in his life. God is bringing him to the knowledge of himself, just like he has each of us. 
And this is part of the providence of God. The first attribute of sovereign grace we witness in this story is the providence of God. And now through the dream, he reminds Jacob of his promises. In verse 13, he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. And he repeats the promise he has made both to Abraham, his grandfather, and to Isaac, his father. Look at verse 14 and 15. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. His grandfather Abraham was given these promises. It's passed down to Isaac. And now he reiterates that this promise was for him, for Jacob, that he was part of this. I'm sure as Jacob dwelt on these words, he thanks how his grandfather was made these promises. I'm sure they sat around the dinner table and talked about these things from time to time. Can you think about the stories that they must have told? How Sarah was promised that she was going to have a son and she was old and how... you know, they laughed about it, and, but it ended up coming to pass. Even Isaac, his father, when he, it was time for him to get a wife, I'm sure they told the story of how he, he sent the servant to the well, and he prayed to God that the woman that comes to the well to draw water, that he would ask her a question about watering the camels, and that she would respond appropriately, and that, that there was a sign that that was to be his wife. I'm sure they reiterated all these promises around the table, and all of this Jacob has heard. All of these stories and promises he's heard about the faithfulness that God has been. And now he's reiterated by God in this dream that he's part of this promise, this covenant, that God reminds him of it. Dumb question, is there a promise that God has never kept? No, we all know that, that God has always kept his promises. But sometimes the timing is not what we would, would want you think about the Israelites, Jacob's descendants, not long after our story, it wasn't going to be very many more years, and they were going to be taken into bondage into, into Egypt, and they were going to spend a long time in bondage in Egypt. And you know, you've seen the, and heard the accounts, and there's even movies that talk about it that show how long they were in misery, and they thought God had abandoned them. But God hadn't abandoned them. There was even a verse... In Genesis 15, that records the promise that says, Thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. And in Exodus 12:41, centuries later, that promise was fulfilled as they were delivered from that bondage. So how does this apply to us? We're not under the old Abrahamic covenant, but God has made us part of a new covenant, a new promise. And as I said earlier, the dream that Jacob had with the ladder reaching to heaven is a shadow of the new covenant we have in Christ. We are wicked, sinful people and have no ability to climb our way to heaven. But God is faithful and he's made lots of promises to us. What are some of the promises that God has made to us? Eternal life. For all those who confess with the name of the Lord and believe in your heart, then you will be saved. That's a promise. I will never leave you you nor forsake you. Just think about you know, the, you know, the fact that he, if you forgive others, I will forgive you. That's a promise. There's so many promises. There's promises about blessing. There's promises about keeping you and holding on to you. I think about the fact that, you know, he said all things work together for good to those who love God. That's a promise. There's so many promises that God has made to us. God is faithful. 
He promised to send the Messiah. He did. He promised that his son's sacrifice would cover our sins. It does. He promised that all who repent and believe, all who trust in that sacrifice would be saved. They have, they are, and they will. He promises to protect, keep us from falling away. He promises to come again, that where he is, we will be also. All of these are promises that we can take, have faith in, that they will come to pass, even though the timing isn't always what we want. So what have we seen so far? We have seen the providence of God. We have seen the promises of God, his faithfulness. And now we turn to the presence of God. One of the reasons that I think Jacob was a liar and a deceiver was because he was not close to God. He knew about God. He believed in God, but he didn't feel close to him. And I think in some ways it's the same today. Many people believe in God. They live like he wound up the world with a clock and then went off into space somewhere and just let us go, though. They don't feel close to him. So how can they... They may know the Ten Commandments, but how can they break one of them and not feel bad about it? Because they don't really feel close to God. They don't feel like there's a, that he's, there's a connection between what God said and, and how he works in our individual's lives. If you think about it, even when Christians sin, what are we saying? I don't believe God's going to take care of me. I'm not really putting my trust in him. All disobedience is really a lack of faith. And it's, I think it comes sometimes from not being close to God. God's not doing it. I'll have to take it upon myself. And I think that's what Jacob was doing. You know, as we look at this, there's a distinct message of the presence or the nearness of God in this story. God has just confirmed the promises to Jacob that he has made with his family. He's saying, I have not deserted you. God is meeting Jacob in his time of need. He's making his presence known. Think about all the needs of Jacob at this point in his life. And how God's meeting them. What, what do you think Jacob feels as he's out here in the wilderness? What are some of the things, if you put yourself in his place, how would you think that Jacob feels right now? Alone? Fearful? I wrote down a list of some of the things I thought I would probably feel. I put, he probably felt guilty, maybe ashamed of what he had done. I thought, you know, he's homeless, he's impoverished, he's coming from probably a wealthy family and he's out here alone in the middle of nowhere. He feels insignificant. He feels the loss of his family. He's fearful of the future. He probably feels like a failure. Now think about what the Lord has told him in the dream and how he answers these needs of Jacob's life. Verse 13 says, I am the God of your father Abraham. That addresses the shame and the guilt. You're an instrumental member of a chosen family. Do not feel ashamed. Homeless and impoverished. Verse 13 says, The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. How was the wealth of one's day measured by in those days? It was by land and, and cattle and sheep and things like that. And he's saying, You may be desolate and homeless right now, but you're going to have a vast land someday. Loss of the family. Verse 14 says, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You may not be with your family now, but I'm going to bless you with a family and descendants so vast you're not going to be able to fathom it. I said he was probably feeling insignificant. Well, verse 14 says, All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. I said he might have fear of the future. Verse 15 says, I am with you wherever you go. How can you be afraid of the future if God's with you? Fear of failure, verse 15. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. This is what Jacob needed to hear. In his hour of need, God comes and makes his presence known to him. 
We get an insight into Jacob's thoughts about God in verse 16. Look at verse 16. When he wakes from the dream, he says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Verse 17, he says, He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob, up until this point of his life, didn't understand much about the nature of God's omnipresence. He was used to going to where? To Where did he go to worship? He didn't probably spend a lot of time worshiping in his house. He had to go to the tabernacle or somewhere to worship. This was a defining point in his life. Jacob learned that when you are walking with the Lord, any place becomes your resting place. Wherever you are, the Lord Yahweh is there. Jacob just happened to be at Luz. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his followers, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have his abiding presence regardless of where we are. We are always with him because he is the ladder into the presence of God. There's no place in this universe where our Lord is not with us. He is our dwelling place. Moreover, there isn't anything that can separate us from the Lord. You know the verse in Romans 8, 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think there's a lot of application here. God's presence is something we desperately need today. It is not about finding God in a church or a worship service. It's about God's presence in our daily lives, in our weakness and desperate situations. God, when he makes himself known to us, is with us where we are. Our house of God, our Bethel, is wherever we are right now. God's grace reaches to us in our moment of need. Now, after God prepared Jacob, after he'd worked all the events in his life to lead him to this exact place outside the city, desperate alone, after he comes into this dream and reminds him of his promises and faithfulness, he then comes to Jacob and allows Jacob to experience his presence in a real and personal way. This is a display of God's sovereign grace in his life. Now, after all of this, there is a response. After all this in our life, there should be a response. And then we're going to see the response in verses 18 through 22. And that's a personal commitment, personally committing yourself to God. Look at verses 18 through 22. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he put under his head. and He set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of this place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. So here we see a commitment, a vow of commitment to God. Now, some read this as a bargaining with God because it says, if, if you will do this, if you will do that, then I will do this. And I think that's a gross misrepresentation of what he's saying. It's better rendered not if, but since. And you find that in other places in Scripture where the if is better translated since. He's saying, since you are going to do these things, since God is with me, since he's going to guide me and protect me and is going to be faithful to me, then I have no other choice than to be committed to you. Jacob is taking God at his word. It is a statement of faith. And he commits an oath or a vow. Remember, he's in the wilderness. He's alone. He's penniless. He has nothing to speak of or to give God. And yet he is committed to tithing or giving God 10% of all that God's promising. That's faith. He's pledging on just the promise 
of a future blessing. And he calls this place Bethel, which means house of God. Jacob has found the grace of God and he commits to serve him and make him his God. This is a personal commitment. And if you know the rest of the story of Jacob's life, you know that it's not an easy life. He's going to have to go work for seven years for the wrong wife and then he's going to have to work another seven years. And throughout his life, he, it's not an easy life, but he fulfills his vow. This is a story about God coming to man, but more importantly, this is a story about God making himself known to individuals. It doesn't matter where you are in life, no matter what your circumstances are, God says that your house of Bethel is wherever you are. There's so much here, but one of the things that stands out to me is that God reaches down to us in our time of need. That's grace. We are right where he planned us to be. His promises will always be answered in the fullness of time. And he is with us. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. That's the story in this Genesis chapter 28. That's the story of Christmas. That's the story of our lives. That the God, the creator of this massive universe is also our personal God, our redeemer, our protector, our savior. And we don't have to climb Jacob's ladder one rung at a time, one good deed at a time. We have trusted in Jesus Christ. And if we've repented of our sins and trusted in him to save us, then he is our ladder to heaven. But it's not just the gateway to heaven, but it's to a presence and a relationship with him that begins here on earth. And it's because of this grace that we commit ourselves to him for what he has done for us. And that's pretty much my lesson. As I thought about the lesson and the way I end it, usually my lessons seem to have more of a conviction or a point of something to do. This message is a little different, and this is a message of appreciation and gratefulness for what God has done for us. It doesn't call us to action other than maybe to recommit ourselves to really serving the Lord because of what he's done for us. That's what the story of Christmas is all about. We can't do anything to earn God's favor. He did it by coming to earth for us. He's made us providentially he has orchestrated all the circumstances in our lives to bring us to him to bring us to the point where we are today he has promised us just numerous wonderful promises that we know without a doubt are going to come true many of us have struggles we have concerns we have burdens we have loved ones that we are concerned about and God amidst all this trial and complications of this earthly life God says trust me believe in me I've made you promises I'm going to fulfill them and then he brings us his presence into our daily lives to get us through this but it's not just a presence that we're going to have in heaven it's a presence today that we can take comfort in I'm just so glad that he tore the veil and rip the veil so that we don't have to go before a priest. We don't have to go through rituals. That we can go to the God of this universe and we can talk to him and he can comfort us and we can pray to him. And that's the story of Christmas. That's the story of Christmas. And because of that love, we should commit ourselves to serving the Lord before what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Father, thank you for bringing us believers here together today to worship you. Thank you for providentially working in my life or in each of these ones who are saved in their lives, Father, that you have brought them to the knowledge of your Son. Father, we thank you for the promises that you have made, that you are faithful, that we can be assured of our salvation, Father, that we know we are not going to fall away, that you are going to keep us and protect us and you are going to come again 
and ushers us into the full presence, Father, of a holy God. And we just thank you that we are able to to have the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives today, helping us to overcome the world and the flesh and the devil. And Father, we're just so thankful this day for all that you have done. And we give your son Jesus the praise and the glory that he deserves for what he has done for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.